Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review a few pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss the inception of Mount Rushmore, a heist in North Carolina, and a truly evil serial killer that was never identified. Two events took place on October 4th, and one event took place on October 5th. October 4th, 1927. Goodson Borglum begins sculpting Mount Rushmore. The Mount Rushmore National Memorial is a colossal sculpture carved into the granite face of the Black Hills near Keystone, South Dakota. Accomplished American sculptor Goodson Borglum created the sculpture's design and oversaw the project's execution from 1927 to 1941 with the help of his son Lincoln. The sculpture features the 60-foot heads of Presidents George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln, all recommended by Borglum. The four presidents were chosen to represent the nation's birth, growth, development, and preservation. South Dakota historian Doan Robinson first conceived the idea of carving the figures into the mountains of the Black Hills in order to promote tourism in the region. His initial idea was to sculpt an area of eroded granite pillars known as the Needles. However, Goodson rejected this idea because of the poor quality of the granite and strong opposition from the Lakota tribe, who consider the Black Hills to be sacred ground. Borglum and tribal representatives settled on Mount Rushmore, which also has the advantage of facing southeast for maximum sun exposure. Robinson wanted it to feature American West heroes, such as Lewis and Clark, Sacagawea, Lakota Chief Red Cloud, Buffalo Bill Cody, and Lakota Chief Crazy Horse. Borglum believed that the sculpture should have broader appeal and chose the four presidents instead. The carving of Mount Rushmore involved the use of dynamite, followed by the process of honeycombing, where workers drill holes close together, allowing small pieces to be removed by hand. In total, almost half a million tons of rock were blasted off the mountainside. The image of Thomas Jefferson was originally supposed to be to Washington's right, but after the work there had started, the rock was found to be unsuitable, so the Jefferson figure was destroyed and a new figure was sculpted to Washington's left. The chief carver of the mountain was Luigi Del Bianco, artisan and headstone carver from Port Chester, New York. Del Bianco emigrated to the U.S. from Italy and was chosen to work on this project because of his understanding of sculpture and his ability to capture emotion in the carved portraits. A studio that displays the unique plaster models and tools related to the sculpting was built in 1939 under the direction of Borglum. He died two years later and his son Lincoln continued the project. Originally, it was planned that the figures would be carved from head to waist but insufficient funding forced the carving to stop. In total, the entire project cost roughly a million dollars, equal to about 17.5 million today. Borglum originally envisioned a grand hall of records where America's greatest historical documents and artifacts could be protected and shown to tourists. He managed to start the project, 
but cut only 70 feet into the rock before stopping in 1939 to focus on the faces. In 1998, an effort to complete Borglum's vision resulted in a repository being constructed inside the mouth of the cave, housing 16 panels that contained historical information about Mount Rushmore as well as other texts Borglum wanted to preserve. The repository consists of a teakwood box housing the 16 panels inside a titanium vault placed into the ground and capped with a granite stone. Here's my take on Mount Rushmore. It's pretty amazing. I mean, that's a, a very impressive feat. There's a lot of controversy surrounding the land that America jacked from the Sioux tribe, the Sioux Indians, but the monument itself it's pretty impressive. October 4th, 1997. The largest cash robbery in United States history occurs in North Carolina. The Loomis Fargo bank robbery was a robbery of $17.3 million from the regional office vault of Loomis Fargo in Charlotte, North Carolina. The robbery was committed by Loomis Vault Supervisor David Gant, his married girlfriend Kelly Campbell, who is a former Loomis co-worker, Stephen Chambers, a one-time FBI informant, and his wife, Michelle Chambers, along with many other co-conspirators. This robbery was the second largest cash robbery on U.S. soil. Just seven months earlier, on March 29, 1997, in Jacksonville, Florida, Philip Johnson stole $18.8 million from the Loomis Fargo armored vehicle he was driving. David Gant had a relationship with Kelly Campbell, and they continued to maintain contact even after Campbell left the company. In August of 1997, Kelly told Gant about her old high school friend, Steve Chambers, who could assist Gant in executing a massive cash robbery of the Loomis Fargo vault. Stephen Chambers had mentioned the possibility of a robbery to Kelly earlier in the summer, possibly inspired by the recent Loomis Fargo truck robbery in Jacksonville. The plan was for Gant to commit the robbery and then quickly leave the country for Mexico but to leave the bulk of the cash with Stephen Chambers. Chambers would then occasionally wire Gant money and see to his basic financial needs. And when the heat was off, Gant would re-enter the U.S. and the money would be split up among all the co-conspirators. On the day of the robbery, Gant was training a new employee and sent him home early at about 6 p.m. He then proceeded to load about $17 million in cash with roughly $11 million that was $20 bills into the back of a company van. Outside of the building, Gant met up with Kelly Campbell, Stephen Chambers, and others who were involved in the plot, and drove to Northwest Charlotte. From there, the money was moved from the company vehicle to private vehicles. Keeping with the plan, Gant then took 50000 the maximum that could be taken across the border without further authorization, and left for Mexico, winding up at the popular resort island of Cozumel. The next morning, Loomis Fargo employees could not open the vault and called the police. The police then called the FBI, 
because most of the money handled at the facility belonged to the banks, which technically made it a bank robbery and a federal offense. Investigators considered Kant to be the prime suspect from the beginning. He was the only employee unaccounted for the next morning, and videotapes recovered at the Loomis Fargo Charlotte office showed Gant removing cubes of cash and loading them into a Loomis Fargo armored van for over an hour. Two days later, when the FBI found the Loomis Fargo armored van, they discovered almost $3.3 million in cash left in the back of the van. They later discovered that the perpetrators miscalculated the sheer volume of the currency and that they simply left the cash that they could not take with them in the back of the van. Investigators also found Gant's pickup truck abandoned at the warehouse. Inside the truck, they also found Gant's wedding ring and assumed this was a sign that Gant had the intention to leave his wife. The FBI quickly connected Gant to Kelly Campbell, but connecting Gant to Chambers was more difficult. Tips led the FBI to begin monitoring Chambers' activities, but it was not until the FBI recorded a call from Gant in Mexico that the final connection was made. By then, the FBI had become seriously concerned for Gant's personal safety. They learned that Chambers planned to have Gant killed by a hitman named Michael McKinney. The FBI investigation was assisted by the gang's extravagant spending. They all agreed to control their spending for a year or two, in the belief that the government would track the spending habits of any suspects for at least a year. Chambers had no intention of following those rules, believing the FBI would never connect him to Gant. He and his wife Michelle moved from their mobile home in Lincoln County to a luxury house in the wealthy Kramer Mountain section of Kramerton. They kept several furnishings from the previous owners, including a painting of Elvis on black velvet. They also bought a BMW Z3 with cash and made other large purchases. Kelly Campbell bought a Toyota Sienna minivan in two cash installments. An additional tip reached the FBI when Michelle Chambers made a large deposit at a bank. She had previously been making frequent small deposits to avert suspicion. But after one visit, she asked the teller, how much can I deposit before you have to report it to the feds? Followed by, don't worry, it's not drug money. The bank filled out a suspicious activity report, which ultimately reached the FBI. Gant's spending in Mexico was extravagant at first. He stayed in a luxury hotel and paid for expensive food and activities such as scuba diving and parasailing. Gant reported to Chambers that his supply of money was running low, but Chambers sent only $8,000. Gant, in order to conserve this money, slowed his spending. He also took various measures to change his appearance after a patron at a restaurant said that he looked like the man who robbed a bank for $20 million. After successfully tracing Gant's phone call, FBI agents and Mexican police arrested Gant on March 1, 1998 at Playa del Carmen, a city near Cancun. The next day, Steve and Michelle Chambers, Kelly Campbell, and four others were arrested. Steve Chambers was sentenced to 11 years and three months in federal prison. His attorney was found guilty of money laundering and sentenced to eight years. Gant was sentenced to seven years. Michelle Chambers received a harsher sentence than Gant, seven years and eight months, because she had violated several bond conditions. Kelly Campbell was sentenced to four years. A comedy film based on the events, called Masterminds, was released in 2016. 
It stars Zach Galifianakis as David Gant, Kristen Wiig as Kelly Campbell, Owen Wilson as Stephen Chambers, and Jason Sudeikis as the hitman, Michael McKinney. Here's my take on the Loomis Fargo bank robbery. All I could do, the entire time I was reading about this story, was picture the characters from the movie. If you haven't seen that movie, you gotta check it out. All the characters are absolutely hilarious. And also, the sentences sound pretty light, right? For that kind of crime? I mean, five to ten years for basically everybody for robbing a bank for $20 It's a federal crime, federal prison, five to ten years. Nobody died, but, I mean, that's pretty serious. And and Chambers had a a hit out on David Gant, too. Yeah, the sentencing seems a bit light. But you got to check out that movie. October 5th, 1982. Tylenol products are recalled after bottles in Chicago laced with cyanide caused seven deaths. The Chicago Tylenol murders were a series of poisoning deaths resulting from drug tampering in the Chicago metropolitan area. The victims all took Tylenol capsules that had been laced with cyanide. It started on September 29th, 1982 when 12-year-old Mary Kellerman of Elk Grove Village, Illinois, died after taking a capsule of extra-strength Tylenol. Adam Janis, age 27, of Arlington Heights, Illinois, died in the hospital later that day after ingesting Tylenol. Adam's brother Stanley, age 25, and sister-in-law Teresa, age 19, also died after taking Tylenol from the same bottle that day. Within the next few days, Mary McFarlane, age 31, of Elmhurst, Illinois, Paula Prince, age 35, of Chicago, and Mary Reiner, age 27, of Winfield, all died in similar incidents. Once it was realized that all of these people had recently taken Tylenol, tests were quickly carried out, which revealed cyanide was present in the capsules. Warnings were then issued through the media and by patrols using loudspeakers, warning residents throughout the Chicago area to discontinue the use of Tylenol products. Knowing that various sources of Tylenol had been tampered with, police ruled out manufacturers, as the affected bottles came from different pharmaceutical companies and the seven deaths had all occurred in the Chicago area. Instead, police concluded that they were likely looking for a culprit who had acquired the bottles of Tylenol from various retail outlets. Furthermore, They concluded that the source was most likely supermarkets and drugstores over a period of several weeks, with the perpetrator likely adding the cyanide to the capsules, then methodically returning to the stores to place the bottles back on the shelves. In addition to the five bottles that led to the victim's deaths, a few other contaminated bottles were later discovered in the Chicago area. In a coordinated effort to reassure the public, Johnson & Johnson sent warnings to hospitals and distributors and halted Tylenol production and advertising. After copycat incidents with strychnine added to Tylenol bottles in California, a nationwide recall of Tylenol products was issued on October 5, 
1982. An estimated 31 million bottles were in circulation with a retail value of over $100 million, equivalent to $270 million today. Hundreds of copycat attacks involving Tylenol and other over-the-counter medications took place around the United States immediately following the Chicago deaths. During the initial investigations, a man named James Lewis was accused of sending a letter to Johnson & Johnson demanding $1 million to stop the cyanide-induced murders. Lewis was arrested and convicted of extortion and sentenced to 10 years in prison. During the trial, attorneys for Lewis claimed that he only intended to focus attention of the authorities on his wife's former employer, Johnson & Johnson. A news outlet in Boston reported that the court documents released in early 2009 show investigators concluded Lewis was responsible for the poisonings despite the fact they did not have enough evidence to charge him. In January of 2010, both Lewis and his wife submitted DNA samples and fingerprints to authorities. Lewis said, If the FBI plays it fair, I have nothing to worry about. Lewis continues to deny any and all responsibility for the poisonings. A second man, Roger Arnold, was identified, investigated, and cleared of the killings. A second man, Roger Arnold, was investigated and cleared of the killings. He had a nervous breakdown due to the media attention, which he blamed on Marty Sinclair, a bar owner. In the summer of 1983, Arnold shot and killed John Stanisha, an unrelated man who he mistook for Sinclair, but didn't even know Arnold. Arnold was convicted in January of 1984 and served 15 years of a 30-year sentence for second-degree murder. He died in June of 2008. Lori Dan, who poisoned and shot a number of people in a 1988 rampage in Illinois, was briefly considered as a suspect, but no direct connection was ever made. On May 19, 2011, the FBI requested DNA samples from the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, in connection to the Tylenol murders. Kaczynski denied ever possessing potassium cyanide. The first four Unabomber crimes happened in Chicago from 1978 to 1980, and Kaczynski's parents had a home in Chicago in 1982 where he stayed on occasion. To this day, the perpetrator of these crimes has never been identified. Here's my take on the Tylenol murders. We will probably never know who killed these people. These murders are especially deranged because there was never a specific target. Just random slaughter of the unlucky people that picked up those bottles in the pharmacy that day. Some maniacal game you would see from a movie villain. It's pure evil and very hard to understand. And now for a few events that deserve less attention. I don't give a shit. Yep, yeah, you shouldn't. October 3rd, 1952. The United Kingdom successfully tests a nuclear weapon to become the world's third nuclear power. Congratulations on third place, losers. October 7th, 1988. 
a hunter discovers three gray whales trapped under the ice near Alaska. The situation becomes a multinational effort to free the whales. There are nature documentaries all over TV of animals dying and killing each other. But three whales trapped in ice creates a worldwide rescue? Forgive me for being very confused. October 9th, 2006. North Korea conducts its first nuclear test. Congratulations on 8th place, losers! That's going to do it for this week. Thank you guys for tuning in. I'm actually going to be out of town next week, so I'll see you in two.